setting the, this big Bible aside may send the wrong signal about what I'm doing as far as preaching goes, but I have this one. This is the one that I preach from. So I'm not laying aside the Bible so I can spout off my own opinions. Let's turn together to 1 Samuel, the final chapter, chapter 31. If you're a visitor here this morning, uh, we do things in a way that's not strange historically in the church, but is kind of strange in Newberry and especially in American preaching, which is that uh, I don't come up with new, flashy, exciting sermon series every month, but we pick up with a book of the Bible, and I preach a chapter or a section or a story, and where we finish is where we pick up the next week, and then the next week, and the next week, and the next week. And so if you're a visitor, you're joining us, sadly, at the end of an amazing journey through 1 Samuel. But the good news is, next week, you can jump right back in as we start the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so for the summer, we're actually going to be looking through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And then the good news is, in the fall, we're going to come back and do 2 Samuel. So uh, the story is going to leave us at a very unsatisfying conclusion. And the reason why is that First and Second Samuel actually in the Hebrew Bible are just one book together. So you aren't meant to break it off in chapter 31. You're meant to keep going into the next book. So I wrestled with wh- whether to do that or not. I said, yeah, you know what, we haven't gotten to see David King yet. So we're going to have to come back in October. We're going to return to Second Samuel. So... But today, we're in 1 Samuel 31, and if you remember from two weeks ago, when we were in chapter 30, what happened with David, and something that's important for us to realize about these final two chapters, chapters 30 and 31, is they take place on the very same day. So David... On the very same day, in chapter 30, is fighting a battle against the Amalekites outside of Ziklag to save his family and his possessions and everything that had been carted off. That very same day, Saul, meanwhile, is on another battlefield fighting against the Philistines. These two battles are happening concurrently on the very same day. Chapters 30 and 31, chronologically speaking, happen at the same time. And you could have put either chapter as the concluding chapter of the book. They happen at the same time. You could have put chapter 31 last, or chapter 31 second to last, the story today, and we could have recounted the story of David and his great victory to finish the book. But the author this morning has intentionally chosen to tell the story from chapter 30 first and to end the book with our story this morning. And these two things whether we finish with chapter 30 or 31 is what determines whether the entire book of 1 Samuel ends as a comedy or a tragedy. Do you guys know in the classical sense what I mean when I say that? Okay, in storytelling, usually you have a conflict that arises among the characters. And depending on how that conflict climaxes and then resolves, if it turns out well for the main characters, it's called a comedy. If it turns out badly for the main characters, then it's a tragedy. So it all has to do with this turn at the last minute. Does it turn out for victory or does it turn out for defeat? 
If we were to end the story in chapter 30, if you remember what happened, David had this great victory. His family was all taken captive by the Amalekites. David and his men, even though they're tired and few, they come in and in the power of the Lord, they rescue all of the people. And in fact, it says there was not a single person, not a single camel, not a single loaf of bread that David didn't win back from the Amalekites. And they celebrate. And in fact, David is sending gifts to all of his friends from this great victory that he's had. And they... All live happily ever after, and the credits begin to roll, right? Not so fast. The author then includes chapter 31. See, the story doesn't end with this happy ending, and the author saves this event of chapter 31 for last on purpose. Because these things are happening simultaneously. We could have talked about Saul's battle first and David's second, which would have made us celebrate and excited. It's a comedy. It's a great, happy ending. But rather than ending at David's victory feast filled with music and celebration and presence, the story ends at a grave. The story takes one last violent turn. And strangely, it it is really a strange thing. As I was reading this story this week and thinking about it, the narrator tells the story in such a way that we can look at the death of Saul, who is the villain throughout the entire book, the one who's been chasing David, making it his one life's work to try to murder this young man who's done nothing but good to him, and somehow tell his death in a way that makes us feel sorry for him makes us have pity even sympathy when you think the death of Saul would be something we would celebrate and be excited about the very opposite is what happens it feels like a tragedy so why is it that the author of first Samuel leaves chapter 31 for the last and as we finish the book brings us not to a victory party but leaves us standing beside a grave. Well, if you found 1 Samuel 31, let's stand together as we receive these sacred writings which are able to make us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, They abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. 
The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers through the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the houses of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that even though the story seems to end without hope, Lord, that you would show us the great hope that we have in our great King Jesus. Lord, I pray that I would exalt you and that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And may be seated. If you've had a British literature class before, you know that many of Shakespeare's great plays end with the death, the tragedies that he's written end with the death of the main characters, often many deaths of many of the main characters, and sometimes even they often end with the suicide of the main characters. Um, If you don't know anything about Shakespeare, you've probably at least heard of Romeo and Juliet, which is a famous Shakespearean tragedy, where the conflict between two families ends with all of this confusion and the climax of the story takes a turn for the worse as both characters, misreading the circumstances, commit suicide with one another. While Saul's death, we would say, those of us who have been here, who have watched him for chapter after chapter, week after week, year after year, We recognize that his death is deserved, that his death and the way he dies is just. It's predictable even. I mean, how else is this story going to end? The suicide of the king of Israel is nonetheless utterly tragic. If we were to survey these closing scenes and we were to think of them maybe as three acts of a play, the first act of, the, of, of, of these scenes would be titled The King Falls. The King Falls. In the story, we kind of catch things up right in the middle of battle and, and it immediately strikes this ominous tone. Mid-fight, Israelites are falling slain left and right. Verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So the jaws of death are coming closer to Saul, and they start on the outer ranks, and they work their way through the concentric circles inward towards Saul. Verse 2. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and they strike down his three sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchishua, and the sons of Saul. For the first time in his life, Saul feels what it's like to be hotly pursued, to be chased down, to have someone with murderous intent in their heart chasing you, singling you out in order to kill you. 
to have an entire army setting their sights upon one man and not satisfied until that one man is put to death. It's what Saul has been experiencing towards David all his life, and here it now comes full circle, death chasing after him. Verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Verse 4, Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Act 1, the king falls. Alexander McLaren comments, All through his reign, no hand had injured him but his own. And as he lived, so he died. His own undoer and his own murderer. It's ironic, isn't it? Because Saul was convinced, no matter who testified on behalf of David, he was so convinced that the hand of David was at work against him. That David was his mortal enemy, that David, given the chance, was going to kill him. And even though David proved that wasn't true, even though his own son Jonathan said, no, 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 David's been faithful, and priests would get up and testify, everyone shouting, this is not the case. The hand of David is not against you. All the while, the hand that was working against Saul was his very own hand. The king falls, and he falls Upon his own sword. Why is it that we feel sorry for Saul? His story ends in very much the same way that Goliath's story ended in chapter 17. David fells Goliath. They chop off his head. They carry it all over the place and celebrate. Well, Saul is as much an enemy of David as Goliath was. His head gets chopped off. It gets paraded around. But somehow we feel sorry for Saul. We don't feel happy, we feel sorry. In chapter 15 we were told, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. It's as if in this last chapter we join Samuel, we join the Lord in this great grief over a fallen king of Israel. The narrator tells the story in a way that summons sympathy in our hearts and not joy. And I think the reason why is because in the fall of Saul, we're supposed to see ourselves. Losing the kingdom because we've disobeyed God, not listening to all of God's warnings and His commands pursuing after the Messiah, the Son of God, the rightful King with murderous intent in our hearts, not caring or listening to any of the warning signs that we are hurtling down a road at breakneck speed that at the end will prove to break our necks. That it will end in judgment. It will end in tragedy, despair, personal harm, and shame. This is what God promised would happen to people who didn't listen to His word all the way back in the Garden of Eden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And we disobey God, and we think death is not coming for us. 
And yet, 1 Samuel 31 comes for every single one of us. Eventually. Choosing to disobey, choosing to sin, we have all fallen on our own sword. We have brought this upon ourselves. We've chosen it. And in fact, we deserve a fate worse than Saul himself because Saul never succeeded in killing the Lord's Messiah. But we have. We've killed the Lord's Christ. We hung Him on a tree in public shame. We pierced Him through. The One whom the Father sent full of grace and truth. And we stood at the judgment seat. And we owned up to what we were doing. We cried out, His blood be upon us and our children. Blame us for this. We've done it. In his last dying moment, Saul is scrambling for some kind of salvation in this life. Save me from the hand of the Philistines. He pleads with the young man who's next to him, carrying his armor. He's worried about being captured. He's worried about being tortured, being humiliated, being brought in front of all of these Philistines. And as the king falls, he fails to see that there is a fate worse than death at the hands of the Philistines. Saul's worried about what's going to happen to him in this life. What about in the next? He's trying to save face. He's trying to save his reputation. Save himself from humiliation and torture and pain. But it's not the Philistines that Saul should fear. And he doesn't realize it even to his last dying breath. He fears everything else. Don't we do the same? Fearing our boss our spouse, rivals, other people, co-workers, neighbors, family, enemies, fearing anyone and everything in this life. But what about the one who stands in the next life to come? We fear everyone and everything except the Lord. Saul's suicide is one final act of rebellion. He would rather fall on his own sword than cry out to the Lord for help. Hmm. A sinful king who dies for his own sins can save no one, not even himself. Act 1, the king falls. And we aren't surprised that like dominoes, as the king falls, so falls the kingdom. That's what we see happen in Act 2. The king falls and then the kingdom falls. And it starts with the man standing right next to him. Verse 5. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Verse 6. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. You see how it's emphasized there? When Saul falls, they all fall. When the king falls, the kingdom falls as well. Throughout his life, Saul was so self-absorbed, he never realized how his own sin was going to affect the whole rest of the kingdom. His own disobedience had ramifications for the people of God. His armor bearer dies with him. His three sons all die with him. The lineage of Saul cut off. His men die with him. And it emphasizes the fact it all happened in the very same way. The kingdom falls. 
verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. They abandon their cities. They flee back across the Jordan River. They leave the promised land and the kingdom falls. The Philistines come and take, retake possession of the promised land and all of these cities that they've left behind. When the king falls, the kingdom falls as well. And this is a pattern that is going to continue through the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. That the kingdom rises and falls based on the man who sits on the seat. If the man seated on the throne is a good and righteous king, guess what? The kingdom rises under his leadership. If the man seated on the throne, which happens so often in these books, if he's evil and wicked, guess what? As the king falls, so falls the rest of the kingdom. If the king obeys, the people do too. If the king sins, the people do too. When the king disobeys God and worships idols and refuses to listen to the word of God, so do the people. The king falls, the kingdom falls as well. This is the bad news. It only takes one man. One man has the power to destroy the entire kingdom of God. One man can bring death to all of his sons, to all the people. One man can forfeit and lose the entire inheritance, the whole promised land. One man can bring guilt and shame upon all the people. One man can bring humiliation on the name of the Lord before all the nations of the world. But this is the good news. It only takes one man. One bad king is able to plunge the entire kingdom into sin. One man has the power, one righteous king, to bring renewal to that kingdom. As with the king, the kingdom falls. If the king rises, so rises the kingdom. And this is the resounding note that although chapter 31 is so sad and tragic, we have this note of hope that drives through this idea, thirdly in the third act, that the kingdom shall be renewed. Yes, the king has fallen. Yes, the kingdom has fallen. But we have to believe and we hold on to this hope that the kingdom shall be renewed. There is hope in the midst of resounding defeat and it comes in two forms. First, we hear this good news, this gospel that's being preached in all the houses of idols among the Philistines. Look at verse 8 with me. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, to preach the gospel to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. So this is what's going on. The Philistines have chopped off Saul's head, and they're carrying it around from town to town, and they're entering into all of their pagan churches, and they're getting in the pulpit, and they're holding up Saul's head, and they're saying, The king is dead! The king is dead! Let's rejoice together in what has happened. 
But as the Philistines are going around and patting one another on the back and celebrating and strapping the body of Saul to the house of Bethshan, which literally means the house of teeth, and I think the idea is they literally impaled Saul on the points of this gate, almost like the jaws of death have consumed him. They're celebrating, and they're so excited. The king is dead, the king is dead. But do you know what they have unwittingly done in killing Saul? They have made David the new king of Israel. David. David, the Philistine giant slayer. You remember him? David, the one who's just been waiting on the Lord to work. And it is the Philistines themselves who make David the newly minted king of Israel. The Lord foretold this day was going to come by the mouth of Samuel. Do you remember Saul? He went to go visit a witch. Because he was so worried about what was going to happen on this day. Just yesterday, he visited a witch, brought Samuel back from the dead, and Samuel gave him one last prophecy, which was just to remind him of what he had said before. And it's this. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. That's what's taking place here. In the same day that Saul fell, David was lifted up. In the same day the sons of Saul died, the sons of David were delivered. In the same day the Philistines are rejoicing over Saul, David and his men are rejoicing over the Amalekites. In the same day Saul was plundered, David was plundering. In the same day Saul lost the kingdom, David gained it. And this, brothers and sisters, gives us hope that the kingdom shall be renewed. However, it's this final act of a few courageous inhabitants from Jabesh-Gilead that anchors our hope. Look at verse 11 with me. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went, went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth-shan and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. You guys remember Jabesh Gilead? It was a while back. Back in chapter 11. It was right after Saul was anointed king. It was Saul's one shining moment. The one time when Saul actually obeyed the Lord and saved God's people. Jabesh Gilead was under siege. The Ammonites were coming and they said, will you give us seven days to you know, contact our newly minted king and see maybe he might come and help us out? And they say, okay, we're well, fine. We'll kill you today. We'll kill you a week from now. It doesn't really matter to us. Go ahead. They call out to Saul. Saul actually summons the troops. They come to Jabesh Gilead. They save the people. And these are the words of Saul. Not a man shall be put to death this day for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel And these very men who come and honor the legacy of Saul are the men who heard in the very next verse Samuel say to the people, Come, let us go down to the banks of the Jordan River and there at Gilgal we will renew the kingdom. The kingdom shall be renewed. The king has fallen, yes, And the kingdom with him. But we do not weep over this tragedy as those who do not have hope. The kingdom shall be renewed. 
There's something quite ironic in the fact that the Philistines are entering the pulpits in their house of idols and proclaiming this. The king is dead. The king is dead. Because isn't this what we celebrate and proclaim in our churches every Sunday? The king is dead. He's died on a cross. He's died a humiliating death for each and every soul among us who deserved to die on a cross for disobeying the Lord, for not listening to Him, that He was pierced for our transgressions and our lawlessness. And we proclaim this like it's a good thing that our King has died. That the cross is the good news that the kingdom shall and has been renewed. We've seen it this morning in the baptisms of Tony and uh, of Silas this morning that we fall and we rise with our King. That we have been buried with Him. That we have died in Christ and that we have been raised to walk in newness of life. We die with Jesus. We rise with Him. The King is dead. He died for the forgiveness of our sins. But that is not the whole story, right? The King is dead. The King is alive. He died for our forgiveness. He is raised to give us eternal life. The kingdom shall be renewed. Yes, there's a first Samuel. There's a second Samuel as well. Praise the Lord. The kingdom shall be renewed. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not only died, but that you have been raised. That you've died in our place. You're a king who is not ashamed to be delivered into the hands of sinful and wicked men for them to mistreat you, humiliate, torture, beat, and pierce you through. And that you offered yourself up for us, your people. We thank you for the courage that we have in knowing that, yes, we have died in Christ, but we have been raised. And this gives us great hope. Lord Jesus, we wait for the day when you come back and we can celebrate with you forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.